This is the hour of doom and bloom. That's right, friends and neighbors. Welcome to Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Podcast, a tower of power in a cowering world. And the number one show, by the way, about medical preparedness, mostly because it's the only show about medical preparedness out there on the interweb. It's like America's Got Talent. If by America you mean me, and by talent you mean senile dementia. Hey, which brings up the question, who is me? Why, me is Joe Alton, MD, also known as Dr. Bones of the award-winning survival website doomandbloom.net. And my wonderful co-host, Nurse Amy, well, she's at the magical warehouse of mystery, filling orders, and she's not going to be here today, but I just want to tell you that she is awesome, so tough, she chews gravel instead of gum, and then spits it right out. Listen, on this show, you're going to get the conventional medical wisdom, the unconventional medical wisdom, and if you're still listening, the many unhinged rants of someone way too old to be let out of the house without supervision. Whatever it takes to get your family medically prepared for hard times, but you know what? To hear all this great information, first you got to listen to this. All information and opinions voiced on the Survival Medicine Podcast are for entertainment purposes only. Do not represent medical advice or anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. We strongly urge our audience to seek modern standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. Or don't see if I care. It's just that the magic eight ball keeps answering end of the world as we know it. But answer this. Who's going to keep your family safe and sound when the next disaster hits the ground? What happens when all the hospitals are out of commission and someone's sick and injured? Who's in charge then? Don't look at me. I'm just a fly in the ointment. When it's least expected, you're elected. So get off your duff and learn some stuff. And get some medical supplies while you're at it. Amy could tell you where you could find some at store.doomandbloom.net, home of some of the highest quality kits in the U.S. of A. I want to mention that the fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, greatly expanded and revised, ranks 4.8 out of 5 on Amazon. Over more than 2,000 reviews is still number one in its categories. If you haven't checked out our greatly expanded new book, you'll find the black and white version on Amazon and the color version at store.doomandbloom.net. We even have a color spiral bound version on our website. You know, you're never too old to learn something new. And last week I learned about the bomb cyclone. What is a bomb cyclone? Well, by definition, it's a low pressure system that experiences a fall in its barometric pressure of 24 millibars in 24 hours, similar to what happens in a hurricane. Well, the Northeast and Midwest experienced one with the holiday season in full swing, and lots of folks were traveling into bad weather. We ourselves had daughters traveling all the way from New York and California to join us here in South Florida for a merry and warmer Christmas. With winter here for a while still, you can bet this isn't the last storm that many are going to have to deal with before spring arrives. Could bode poorly for unprepared folks that are stuck on the road during blizzards or other extreme conditions. Hypothermia, which is the effects of the body from exposure to cold, can occur on the wilderness trail, but also right in the driver's seat of the family's car. So it's important to have a plan in case you're stranded in your vehicle. Now, winter conditions don't just affect people, they affect cars as well. Cold affects rubber and metal. It even decreases the battery's efficiency. Tires become stiff and flat for the first few hundred yards at least, and your oil and other lubricants become thicker at cold temperatures. This makes the engine work harder and can cause some definite problems. Therefore, vehicles doing duty in extreme cold should be winterized. This involves switching to a lighter viscosity oil, changing the snow tires, and choosing the right antifreeze ratio of coolant to water. Gas tanks, by the way, should never be less than half full in the winter. You can find more in-depth information on winterizing your car at dmv.org. Now listen, you're not a bear, so you can't hibernate through the cold weather. You're going to have to take measures to avoid becoming a victim of it. Many deaths from exposure are avoidable if 
simple precautions are taken. You want to keep an eye on weather forecasts before you head out. Conditions can change rapidly if a cold snap is on the way. The first question you should ask before you get in the car in cold weather is, is this trip necessary? If the answer is no, you should stay in place, cozy and warm. But sadly, for most people that commute to work, the answer is yes, I gotta go. If you have to hit the road during a winter storm, drive as if your life depends on it, because it does. Brush ice and snow off of windshields, side mirrors, and anything that might block your view. Don't speed, tailgate, or weave in and out of traffic. Make turns slowly and deliberately and avoid quick stops and starts. I found myself in a fender bender years ago during a ski trip when my car slid into the back of another. It went more than 60 feet with my foot on the brake, by the way, before hitting the car in front. Not on a highway, but just on a street in town. Now, if you do have to hit the road, notify somebody of your travel plans before you head out. Always take your cell phone with you. Many smartphone apps now allow your location to be tracked with your permission. We were able to monitor the progress of our children during their entire trips. Be sure your focus is on the road, not the latest texts from your friends. If you live in an area that routinely has very cold winters, you may not be able to avoid being stranded in your car one day. Your level of preparedness will improve your chances of staying healthy and getting back home. So what should your plan of action be? Stay calm and don't leave the car. It's warmer there than outside and you have protection from the wind. Having adequate shelter is one of the keys to success, whether it's in the wilderness or on a snow-covered highway. Crack a window on the side away from the wind for some fresh air. People talk about winter and food being necessary for survival, but first, you'll need a source of fresh air, right? Wet snow can block up your exhaust system, which causes carbon monoxide to enter the passenger compartment. Colorless and odorless, this is a deadly gas that kills in enclosed spaces without ventilation. Clearing the exhaust pipe of snow and running the engine only 10 minutes or so an hour, if idling, will help prevent monoxide poisoning. If you're in a group, huddle together as best you can to create a warm pocket of air. Rub your hands, put them in your armpits, or otherwise keep moving to keep your muscles producing heat. Don't overexert yourself. If your car's stuck in the snow, you want to dig yourself out, but if you're sweating while doing it, it's going to cause clothing to become wet, and wet clothing loses its value as insulation and leads to hypothermia. Let others know you're there. If you have flares, use them. Flashing emergency lights on your vehicle will drain battery power, so use them only if you think someone might see them. If you're going to travel in very cold conditions, there are a certain number of items that you should keep in your vehicle. This is what an effective winter survival car kit should contain. Wool blankets for warmth. Wool can stay warm even if wet. Spare sets of dry clothes, including socks, hats, and mittens. Hand warmers or other instant heat packs. They'll last for hours. Matches, lighters, or fire starters in case you have to manufacture heat. Candles in a metal can or bucket. Believe it or not, these can produce a surprisingly decent amount of heat in a small space, like the interior of a car. Flashlights. Keep batteries in backwards until you need them to extend their life. Multi-tool with blades, screwdrivers, pliers, etc., Large combination tool like a foldable multi-use shovel, acts as a shovel but also can be an axe, a saw, and other things. Sand or rock salt in plastic containers. That's to give traction when needed. Believe it or not, some have used cat litter successfully for this purpose. A tow chain or rope would be good. Flares, starter cables for jump starts. A fix a flat or portable air compressor in case of a flat tire. Water, food, energy bars, MREs, dehydrated soup, uh, trail mix, candy, things like that. Baby wipes for hygiene purposes. A first aid kit, of course. Every car should have one. I know where you can get one at store.doomandbloom.net. Uh, medications like routine meds that you take daily like or and things like ibuprofen or acetaminophen. A tarp would be useful. Uh, duct tape, a brightly colored tarp, would actually be more visible and might help you get rescued faster. A metal cup, a thermos, a heat source to melt snow and make soup if you have to. 
uh, a noisemaker like a whistle or some other foghorn, something like that. And of course, your cell phone and charger. And in normal times, the number of a towing service. If you have other suggestions, besides what I just said, and there's a pretty extensive list, send me an email at drbonespodcast at aol.com. It may seem like a lot, but the items that I just mentioned will give you a head start in keeping safe and sound, even if stranded. With a plan of action, a few supplies, and a little luck, you'll survive even in the worst blizzard. Here's a poem for you. Under a spreading chestnut tree, the village smithy stands. The smith, a mighty man, is he, with large and sinewy hands. And the muscles of his brawny arms are strong as iron bands. This verse from a Longfellow poem underscores the importance of the chestnut tree in American literature and culture. I want to talk about the health benefits of chestnuts, that old holiday favorite, but I'm doing it for a special reason you might approve of, or maybe might not, so bear with me. Chestnuts are a good source of antioxidants, and unlike other foods, uh, they not only remain good after cooking, but two of them, gallic acid and elagic acid, actually increase. So you have antioxidants that actually increase with cooking. That's a sort of an unusual thing. Antioxidants are thought to be protective against substances which play a role in all sorts of diseases, heart disease, cancer, things like that. Now, chestnuts can also help improve your digestion. These nuts are a good source of fiber, which helps keep you regular and supports the growth of healthy bacteria in your gut. Chestnuts are also gluten-free, which makes them a healthy choice for people with celiac disease. The fiber in chestnuts could also help your blood sugar, avoiding spikes that could be dangerous for diabetics. Plus, chestnuts have a low glycemic index. Foods that are rated lower on the glycemic index won't cause major changes to blood sugar levels when they're eaten. Chestnuts are lower in calories than many other types of nuts and are a good source of amino acids, monounsaturated fatty acids, phenols, and vitamin C, but also contain E, A, B complex, calcium, magnesium, zinc, iron, copper, and manganese. Wow. So why aren't we eating chestnuts all the time? And not just the nuts, the tree itself has valuable properties. Its root system guards against erosion better than some other trees. Plus, chestnut wood is relatively rot-resistant. and was used widely in fences, telephone poles, railroad ties, and even musical instruments. Now you're lucky if you see a live tree in North America. Although very small numbers still exist, American chestnut trees are scarce in North America, which is a sad statement. Once, whole forests in the east and midwest were comprised of 100 feet tall chestnut trees, no more due to a horrendous blight that wiped out billions of them in the first half of the 20th century. If you manage to find chestnuts in the store during the holidays, well, lucky you, it's because they're from somewhere else. I found some that were imported from, guess where, Italy, of all places. In the 21st century, however, there are those who believe American chestnuts can return utilizing genetic engineering. In fact, the U.S. Department of Agriculture has released an environmental impact statement and plant pest risk assessment that would allow the unrestricted planting of newly engineered blight-tolerant chestnut trees on public and private lands. If approved, the sought the tree will be the first genetically engineered plant released with the specific purpose of spreading freely into wild forests. Now, if the plan works, the tree would improve forest health, increase biodiversity, would be an economic boom to nearby communities. A controversy is arising, however. Our history is filled with examples of introducing plants and animals into areas where they either aren't native or haven't been for many years. Sometimes it's successful, as when elk were reintroduced into the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. Other times, like when the Burmese python was let loose by snake owners into the Everglades National Park, it resulted in irreversible damage. Indeed, there have been 90% population collapses of just about every small mammal in the Everglades since the python became established there. So where do you come down on introducing the genetically modified American chestnut into your area? 
Survival, they say, want food security? Plant a nut tree. But studies have shown that genetic structure of plants can mutate and might exhibit unexpected traits after reproducing. No, they're not going to start walking around, but how are they going to affect the local ecology? It's always possible that these new chestnuts, as they grow older and larger, won't be able to repel the blight, particularly if the enzyme produced by the wheat gene scientists inserted into chestnut DNA, a wheat gene, amazingly, uh, decides to shut off in more mature trees. We don't know. There aren't 50-year-old genetically engineered trees to study. There's no proof that any of that will happen, however, and the chestnut tree has been an important part of the development of both natural and human communities in North America. Maybe they can choose some test areas, perhaps areas that have been cleared by wildfire, for some stands to be planted and observe their impact. Worth a shot? Too risky? Let me know your thoughts at drbonespodcast at aol.com, or of course you can always join us on our Facebook, MeWe, or PrepperNet groups. And now a word from our sponsor, Dog Face Pony Soldiers. You've heard of the good work that Wounded Warriors and Tunnels to Towers does, but how about Dog Face Pony Soldiers or us? Yes, Dogface Pony Soldiers R Us is the organization that takes old cavalry veterans from the 1870s and provides them with plastic surgery options to make them less, well, dog-faced. Don't let Joe Biden diss our 19th century heroes just because of some facial disfigurement. Do some good today and donate the next time you hear. Dogface Pony Soldier. You said you were, but you're, you're, now you got to be honest. I'm going to be honest with you. Dogface Pony Soldier. We honor the service of all our soldiers, dog-faced or not. Now, there's a reason I dug up that old gaffe from Joe. I'm an old Joe myself, so I have free reign to take some liberties with him. We had a lot of family visiting this holiday season. Each brought their own dogs along. Of course, all pups are welcome at the Alton Homestead, but their presence brings up the topic of canine health. One particular issue making the rounds this winter is dog flu, otherwise known as canine influenza. Yes, dogs can get the flu also, just not the same flu that humans do. Influenza A viruses attack various species, everything from birds to horses to dogs to us. The canine versions seem to have jumped from horses to dogs, similar to the way the swine flu jumped from hogs to humans. So what is canine influenza? Canine influenza, also known as dog flu, is a contagious respiratory disease in dogs. I guess I should start by reassuring you that no human infections with canine influenza have yet been reported. There are two different influenza A dog flu viruses. One's an H3N8 virus and the other is an H3N2 virus. Influenza A viruses, by the way, are divided into subtypes based on two proteins on the surface of the virus, hemagglutinin H and neuraminidase N. There are about 18 different hemagglutinins and about 11 different neuraminidase subtypes. So you'll see all sorts of numbered and lettered virus types for influenza A, like H1N2 or h 4 and five, that things like that. Uh, canine influenza H3N2 viruses are different from the seasonal influenza, by the way, that spread annually in people that are also a type of H3N2. However, influenza viruses are constantly changing. It's always possible that a canine influenza virus could change so that it could infect people and spread easily among humans. Human infections with novel or non-human influenza A viruses against which the human population has little immunity are concerning when they occur because of the potential that a pandemic could result. Think about bat coronaviruses. They jumped to humans and became COVID-19, so they are a serious thing. Let's talk about the two subtypes. Canine influenza H3N8 viruses originated in horses, spread to dogs, and now spread between dogs. H3N8 equine influenza horse flu viruses Uh, have been known to exist in horses for more than 40 years. In 2004, cases of an unknown respiratory virus in dogs, initially greyhounds, were reported in the United States for the first time. They used to race greyhounds back then. I wonder if they housed greyhounds and racehorses together at some point. Anyway, 
It turns out that this respiratory virus was caused by equine influenza A, H3N8 viruses. Scientists believe that this virus jumped species from horses to dogs and adapted to cause illness in dogs and spread among dogs, especially those that were housed in kennels and shelters. This is now considered a dog-specific or canine H3N8 virus. In September 2005, the virus was identified by experts as a newly emerging pathogen disease-causing organism in the dog population in the United States. It's now been detected in dogs across almost all states. Canine influenza H3N2 viruses originated in birds, then spread to dogs and can now spread between dogs. Transmission of H3N2 canine influenza viruses to cats has been reported also from infected dogs. Canine influenza A H3N2 viruses were first detected in dogs in South Korea in 2007. They've been reported in dogs in China, Thailand, Canada, and in more than 30 U.S. states. To date, the H3N2 canine viruses reported in the U.S. have been almost genetically identical to canine H3N2 viruses previously reported only in Asia, so we know where they came from. Both of these canine influenza viruses, H3N8 and H3N2, are now considered endemic, that means naturally occurring, in dogs in the United States. The good news is at this time there's no evidence that canine influenza affects humans nor that it has pandemic potential. That's good because I can imagine a situation where a lot of pet dogs would wind up being euthanized if there were widespread outbreaks in people. Okay, so what are the signs of canine influenza in dogs? The signs of this illness are cough, runny nose, fever, lethargy, eye discharge, and reduced appetite. Like some viruses in humans, the severity of illness associated with canine flu in dogs can range from no signs to severe illness resulting in pneumonia and sometimes even death. Luckily, most dogs recover on their own within two to three weeks. However, some may develop secondary bacterial infections which lead to more severe illness. The percentage of dogs infected, however, that die is very small. Almost all dogs are susceptible to canine flu infection. It's rare to have pre-existing immunity. Virus infections seem to be most contagious and rapid spreading among dogs housed in kennels, shelters, and doggy daycare. Canine flu is thought to spread mainly through respiratory droplets produced during coughing and sneezing from the infected dogs or through contact from contaminated surfaces. Therefore, dog owners whose pets are coughing or showing other signs of respiratory disease should not expose their dog to other dogs or even to cats, even in outdoor dog parks. Dogs use their noses and mouths for everything, so it's easy for their respiratory secretions to spread, and the virus can live in the environment for, believe it or not, up to 48 hours. The animal might be contagious for up to three to four weeks as well. Clothing, equipment, surfaces, hands should be cleaned and disinfected after exposure to dogs that are showing signs of any respiratory disease. If your dog is sick and there are other dogs in the house, isolate it in a separate room and don't let that dog share bowls, beds, or toys with the others. So what is the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention doing about canine influenza? Current CDC influenza virus regulations apply only to viruses with pandemic potential in people. However, CDC is doing a number of things to be prepared in the unlikely event that canine influenza becomes a threat to humans or to animals other than canines. First, the CDC conducts year-round surveillance for seasonal and novel influenza A viruses. All human infections with new influenza A virus strains are investigated. Testing to confirm H3N8 and H3N2 canine influenza virus infection in dogs is also available. Like most viruses, there's no cure for dog flu, but there is a vaccine. The vaccines don't necessarily prevent infection, but they theoretically lessen the severity of the symptoms, shorten the duration of the disease, reduce the amount of time dogs are contagious, and most importantly, protect against more severe complications like a pneumonia. I would think that a dog that doesn't spend a lot of time in the company of other dogs would be less likely to be recommended to get the vaccine, though. 
Treatment of a sick pup largely consists of a supportive care which helps to keep the dog hydrated and comfortable while its body mounts an immune response to the infection. In the milder form of the disease, this care may include medication and fluids to make your dog more comfortable. Hey, here's a segment of our show where I take questions posed to me in the past, often on our friend Jack Spirico's Survival Podcast. If you have questions you'd like to hear me address on the podcast, send us an email at drbonespodcast@aol.com. Here we go. Hi, Joe Alden, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival website doomandbloom.net, co-author of the award-winning Amazon Top 20, fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, and designer of quality medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. In a survival scenario, the family medic is going to be called upon not only to care for medical issues, but dental as well. Military medics during the Vietnam War reported that they dealt with dental problems almost as often as medical. While dental training was relatively informal back then, a special operations combat medic today may train to become a special operations medical sergeant, undertaking training not only in dental care, including extractions, but other outside-the-box skills like veterinary as well. When the miracle of modern dentistry isn't around to save a damaged tooth, we have to return to tooth extraction as the treatment of choice for most dental emergencies. In any situation that involves long-term loss of power, the medic will eventually be confronted with a tooth that has to come out. Indeed, the grand majority of dental emergencies can be resolved that way. Tooth extraction is not an enjoyable experience as it is. It's got to be less so in a long-term survival situations with no power and limited supplies. Unlike baby teeth, a permanent tooth is unlikely to be removed simply by wiggling it out with your hand or tying a string to it in the nearest doorknob and then slamming the door. Knowledge of the extraction procedure with limited supplies is going to be important for anyone expecting to be the family caregiver off the grid. Yes, you heard me. I'm going to actually tell you how to extract the tooth. Be aware, however, that it's illegal and punishable by law to practice dentistry without a license. The lack of formal training or experience in dentistry may cause complications that are much worse than a bum tooth. If you have access to modern dental care, seek it out. Once a decision has been made to remove a tooth, recent studies suggest that giving 800 milligrams of ibuprofen before dental procedures helps relieve post-extraction pain significantly. Have a good supply of this useful medication in storage and maybe some clove oil to dull the pain. Notice that I haven't mentioned local anesthesia injections. Well, in a situation where the defecation hits the oscillation, well, you're going to be off the grid and won't have lidocaine to use as a local anesthetic. I write about situations where there's no functioning medical or dental infrastructure, so I'm explaining this procedure as if we were off the grid and stuck in an earlier era. It may sound unrealistic or even barbaric to you, but disasters happen and the medic may find themselves in austere settings. The materials used are available in unique specialty kits like the one we have in our store, which, by the way, comes with a copy of Where There Is No Dentist. Proper positioning will help you perform the procedure more easily. For an upper extraction, also called in maxillary extraction, the patient should be tipped at a 60-degree angle to the floor. The patient's mouth should be at the level of the medic's elbow. For a lower extraction, also called a mandibular extraction, the patient should be sitting upright with the level of the mouth lower than the medic's elbow. Right-handed medics should stand to the right of the patient, left-handers to the left. For upper and most front-lower extractions, it's best to position yourself in front. For lower molars, some prefer to position themselves behind the patient. The medic needs to wash your hands and put on gloves. Also, I think a face mask and some eye protection would be a good idea. The area around the tooth should be kept as dry as possible so that it can be easily visualized. There will be some bleeding, so place cotton rolls or balls around the tooth to be removed. Uh, rolled gauze squares will also work in a pinch. These may have to be changed from time to time. 
Teeth are anchored in their sockets by ligaments, which are fibrous bands of connective tissue. These ligaments must be severed to loosen the tooth. This goal is best accomplished with something called a dental elevator. An instrument can come in various shapes. Some may appear like a screwdriver with a very small head, others like a tiny chisel, a shovel, or even an arrowhead. Once loosened, instruments called extraction forceps are used to remove the tooth. These are specialized for each type of tooth, incisors, canines, premolars, molars. Indeed, there are more types of extractors than there are teeth. Once positioned, the procedure goes as follows. You separate the gum from the tooth. An instrument called a spoon excavator between the tooth in question and the gum on all sides will separate the two. If you skip this step, the gum may tear during the extraction, causing bleeding that will slow the healing process. Then you loosen the tooth. Use a dental elevator to go between the tooth and the bony socket. Use your index finger for support against the tooth in front of the one being extracted and apply pressure with the head of the elevator to get down to the root area. Your goal is to sever the ligaments holding the tooth in place. Expect some bleeding. Then you extract the tooth. Take your extraction forceps, grasp the tooth as far down the root as possible. This will give you the best chance of removing the tooth in its entirety the first time. If you can do this, the procedure is a lot less complicated. For front teeth, which have one root, exert pressure straight downward for uppers, straight upward for lowers. For teeth with more than one root, such as molars, a gentle side-to-side rocking motion will help loosen the tooth further as you extract. Once loose, avoid damage to neighboring teeth by extracting towards the cheek rather than towards the tongue. This is best for all but the lower molars, which are furthest back, like the wisdom teeth. Not uncommonly, a tooth might break during the extraction. In this case, use your elevator to identify and further loosen the root, then extract it from the socket using the instrument as a lever. You want to control post-extraction bleeding. You place some gauze in the bleeding socket, have the patient bite down. In most cases, bleeding should be light. If excessive bleeding occurs, products such as Actcel, A-C-T-C-E-L, or Kytazan, hemostatic gauze, can be cut into small, moistened squares and placed directly on the bleeding area. It should form a gel which can be rinsed away with water in 24 hours. Alternatively, layers of 2x2-inch gauze, which we call 2x2s, can be used to place pressure into the socket by closing the mouth. Occasionally, a suture may be required if bleeding is heavy and direct pressure with gauze fails. Use 4-ochromic catgut or 4-polyglycolic acid, vicryl, absorbable suture material. Without some of these items, improvisations may be necessary. In a Cuban study, veterinary superglue, that's butyl 2 cyanoacrylate was used, very carefully we hope, in over 100 patients with good success in controlling both bleeding and pain. Dermabond, a prescription medical glue, has been used in some cases in U.S. emergency rooms. After the procedure, liquids and a diet of soft food should be given to decrease trauma to the sensitive area. You may need a cold pack to help decrease swelling. Hot liquids and hard foods should be avoided for 24 to 72 hours. Expect some swelling, bruising, and pain over the next few days. For the first 24 to 48 hours, those cold packs will come in very handy. Afterwards, use warm compresses to help with jaw stiffness. Use medicines such as ibuprofen, 2 to 400 milligrams every 4 hours, or 600 to 800 milligrams every 8 hours for pain. Alternatively, acetaminophen, 500 milligrams every 4 hours, should also help for pain. Some stagger the two medicines, by the way. Begin warm salt water rinses after 6 to 8 hours. Stay away from aspirin, by the way, as it may hinder the protective blood clot that naturally forms in the socket. That blood clot is your friend, so make sure not to smoke, spit, or use straws. 
These actions might dislodge it and cause a condition called alveolar osteitis, or dry socket. With this condition, you'll notice the clot has disappeared and that the patient has throbbing jaw pain and very foul breath. Antibiotics and warm salt water gargles are useful here. A solution of 8 fluid ounces of water with 1-2 to two drops of clove oil may serve to decrease the pain, but don't use too much because it could burn the mouth. Although not all agree, antibiotics given just before and just after extraction may reduce the risk of infection and dry socket. Amoxicillin 500 milligrams, cephalexin 500 milligrams, or metronidazole 500 milligrams are options and are, at the time of this writing, available in veterinary equivalents and elsewhere. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, don't forget that the Member Support Brigade gets a discount off orders of books, medical and dental kits, and individual supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. Check out our entire line and increase your family's level of medical preparedness. You'll be glad you did. Well, that's all the time we have. You've been listening to the Survival Medicine Podcast. For Amy Alden, I'm Joe Alden, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week.
Are you worried about how dangerous the world has become? In these days of terrorist attacks, natural disasters, or even a future collapse, you need to be medically prepared to keep your family safe. I'm Amy Alton, ARNP of store.doomandbloom.net, where you'll find an entire line of uniquely designed medical kits and supplies for when help is not on the way. For everything from individual first aid kits to the ultimate family bag, go to store.doomandbloom.net today. You'll be glad you did.